Wait, there are subtle things that we all do uh, without even knowing it. Like, we can be walking along and it happens and we don't even realize it until someone points it out. And uh, the main reason for that is this beautiful thing that the Lord has given humans called a brain. Uh, Outside of being made in the image of God, this is the thing that most separates us from the rest of creation. Our ability to think intelligently and do intelligent things. And like I said, a lot of times we do them without even knowing it. For instance, blinking. Did you know that uh, a study has shown that probably we blink on average of over 20,000 times a day? Uh, You probably never would have noticed me blinking until I mentioned that. Now you will uh, during the service. But it's estimated that maybe even 5 to 10% of our waking life is spent with our eyes closed through blinking, which is crazy. Because we don't tell ourselves to do it. We just... We, our body knows that it's supposed to be done, so it happens. Um, we, we do other things like use our dominant hands. Uh, I don't tell myself to always pick that up with my right hand, but just because over time, that's what I've learned to do, it just happens. Same thing with my cell phone. Uh, I can be addicted to the cell phone, and so I will open it, open Instagram, check something, check email, and shut my phone, and I have no idea that I just did it. Like, it's just so natural because of the environment that I'm in and the the things that I do on a day-to-day basis. Uh, You match pace with people when you're walking beside them without realizing it. There's lots of different things uh, that we do. Some of them are good. Uh, You know, blinking is good. It keeps our eyes healthy. Some of the things we do unconsciously, though, can be bad. And uh, if you are in the marketplace, or really maybe everyone in here has heard of this, but there's this concept called unconscious bias. And it's this idea of being biased against somebody or for somebody else without even realizing it. And so uh, as we talk about that a little bit, I want y'all to watch this video. It's even got some math in it, which I love. So y'all probably didn't realize this is what you were coming for, but here you go. The unconscious mind is amazing. It can process vastly more information than our conscious mind by using shortcuts based on our background, cultural environment, and personal experiences to make almost instantaneous decisions about everything around us. The snag is, it's wrong quite a lot of the time, especially on matters that need rational thinking. Here's a classic example. A bat and a ball cost one pound ten pence. If the bat costs one pound more than the ball, how much does the ball cost? Most people, including over 50% of students at some of the world's leading universities, get the answer wrong and say 10 pence. The answer is actually 5 pence. Many of us choose 10 pence without thinking. This is because our unconscious mind uses instinct, not analysis. So our unconscious is fallible. It's also biased. It makes snap judgments of people we meet, categorizing them according to gender, social and other characteristics. In milliseconds, we judge whether somebody is like us and belongs to our in-group. These are the people we favor. So men might favor men, while women might favor women. However, we can belong to different in-groups and we like to be part of an in-group that's powerful, which could mean a woman favoring a man over a woman. That's unconscious bias. All of us have it, and it colors our decisions without our realizing. Welcome to church. 
you may be wondering, why in the world are we talking about this? Well, we'll get there. But it, that video reveals a little bit of something called favoritism, right? So favoritism, the practice of giving unfair preferential treatment to one person or group at the expense of another. And it's something that we as humans do all the time without even realizing it. Sometimes we are conscious about it and still do it, but other times it's just subtle. And we tend to favor two types of people. So there's this thing called affinity bias, which is basically when you are biased towards someone who is like you. So it's a little bit of what the video was talking about, but someone who may be the same gender, race, uh, status in life, whatever it may be, we surround ourselves with people who are like us. We just naturally do it. The other one that that we're going to see in Scripture a little bit today is surrounding ourselves with people who maybe we can gain something from. And so this idea of showing favoritism to someone who's maybe higher up and who we could benefit in some way from uh, knowing them or being part of their life. And I have been on both sides of favoritism. And to be honest, I didn't like either of them. Uh, I grew up as a white guy in West Memphis, Arkansas, where I was actually the minority. And in a lot of ways, I can remember times in my life where I felt like I was given preferential treatment, whether it was time playing on a school basketball team or an award that I didn't feel like I deserved or whatever it may be. And it just felt uncomfortable. And I've been on the other side too, where I felt excluded. Vulnerable moment here. This was the biggest fight in my relationship with my wife. It actually came when we were dating. Uh, We had been dating about a year, and uh, she was a diver at the University of Arkansas, so she had like cool athletic privileges that I didn't have. And so Arkansas was playing uh, Alabama in a big football game. We were both like top five, top 10. This is back in 2011, I believe, and, or maybe 2010. And I had to camp out to get in the game. I slept on the concrete for two nights. So 48 hours, I've got, you know, a stick of deodorant and a toothbrush and toothpaste that I can just throw away and go into the game. And so I had been there and it was like two hours before the game, an hour before the game, 30 minutes. And like, it's leading up. Everyone's getting really excited. I know I'm going to have to run into that game just to try to find a seat. And here comes my sweet girlfriend walking by with her athletic friends in her athletic gear. And she walks in front of the whole student section and gets up to the front and they let her in early because of her status. And I remember her looking at me and I'm thinking, oh, she's going to say hi or something. She just looks at me and goes, bah! <laughs> and like, I was fuming. Um, and I felt this, like, I feel excluded. Now you can make the argument. She earned that. She put in lots of hours and practice and totally. But what I felt in that moment was like, I wasn't given the same opportunity that someone else was. And, and I felt like I had deserved it. And it's not fun, especially being on that end of favoritism, especially if it's in the church. And we're going to see James address that in James chapter 2, this idea that even amongst believers sometimes, if we're not careful, that unconscious bias will set in and we will show favoritism to certain people over other people, and a lot of times without even knowing it. So the big push for this morning is for us to remember as the body of Christ that the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and everything that he's done, the gospel breaks barriers between people and brings unity. When our natural tendency is to set up these lines and to divide and put people in categories like that video is talking about, the gospel actually does the opposite. Uh, I've heard quite a few people say, I've heard Billy Graham say it, I've heard Robert Cupp say it, I don't know which of them came up with it, but uh, y'all probably heard this saying, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And, and when you come to Jesus, all the status and the things of this world, 
Like, they don't matter in light of who he is, even though we as humans sometimes tend to elevate those over elevating the Lord. So we're going to see James bring this out a little bit, and sometimes James is uncomfortable to read. A lot of people like it. It's one of their favorite books, which is funny because a lot of times it's some of the most harsh truth because, you know, Scripture really dives in, and um, Scripture tells us that God's Word divides even the soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And uh, I was watching an overview of James. If y'all haven't watched the eight-minute overview on the Bible Project. They do overviews of every book. They're so easy and good and great for people like me who just have a hard time understanding big concepts. Here's how that eight-minute video ended to summarize the book of James. The book of James is a beautifully crafted punch in the gut for those who want to follow Jesus. And a lot of times what we read may not seem offensive at first glance because we think, oh, that's not us. But then when we really take it in, we're like, oh, I struggle with that. I definitely struggle with that. So we're going to see that today, and it's just a reminder that if I, as a pastor or anyone who's teaching, doesn't say something that's kind of challenging or offensive, we're probably not doing our job of teaching God's Word, because this thing can be offensive because of how deep it goes to our our core. So James chapter 1, the last verse of James chapter 1 ends this way. We're going to be mostly in two today, but here's what James 1.27 says. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So you've got James ending chapter 1, which chapter 1 is basically a summary and a preview of everything else that he's about to to talk about. So he kind of just hits some highlights in one, and then he really breaks down these concepts in the rest of the book. And so James chapter 2 is the first kind of big teaching that he's going to hit on that he's already touched on a little bit in one. But as he ends chapter 1, he, he says, hey, here's what pure and undefiled religion looks like, okay, to love those who are marginalized, to live out the truth of what it means to love one another, and to not be completely stained by this world, to live in it but not of it. So what's that first religious practice that he's going to hammer down? in chapter 2 when he breaks into his first sermon. Is it the number of services we should attend to be purely religious? No. He says, my brothers, here's your flaw. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He reveals that while we, you know, hold faith in Christ as believers, we are hypocritical when we show partiality towards other people. And that term partiality literally means to take it face value. So to see something or someone and to make a judgment call based on what you see and treat them based on that judgment call. To show, so to show partiality towards people. Now, before we really get into what James is going to break down that he sees in their culture, I thought we'd take a step back and talk about just general partiality. Where do we show favoritism in life. Uh, I'll be honest, I judge restaurants based on one thing, the quality of their ranch dressing, which I know may sound really stupid, but my thought is if they can't make good ranch, they can't make anything else good, okay? Uh, There's good ranch, there's bad ranch. You want it kind of runny, you don't want it too thick, like there's just an art form for it, but they may have the best steak, the best, best burger, the best fries, the best pizza, the best whatever, but in my head, if they don't have good ranch, I've ruled them out immediately, right? Now, we wouldn't do that with people, would we? We wouldn't make judgment calls about certain people based on whatever, let's say, school district 
that they're in, would we? As a youth pastor, I, I can't wear a Bentonville West or a BHS Tiger shirt. I just can't. Around students, because if someone sees me from the opposite school, they instantly hate me. And they're like, You're, you favor those people and you never come to our games. I'm like, I'm wearing a t-shirt. Like, that's all this is. But we make judgments based on what school districts that people are part of. Even these mascots look like they want to kill each other, right? They're just going head to head. And you've got, you know, students doing this. And, and I wonder if maybe students struggle with putting people into these categories because they see their parents do it and talk about like, oh yeah, the West parents are just so fill in the blank. Or any kid that goes to BHS is probably whatever. And it's like, really? You're lumping everyone based on the address of their house into a category. But we do it. Uh, maybe that one doesn't get you. This one probably will. You ever judge someone based on the pet that they have? Right? You're, you, you look at someone who's a small dog person and you instantly have a theory about who they are deep down inside and what their issues are and the things they struggle with. And you look at a big dog person, you're like, they got power struggles, they just want to intimidate, like all these big dogs. Why do you even need a dog that big? That doesn't make sense. If you own a snake, I hate you instantly. <laughs> I, anybody with me? Who, does anybody own a snake? You do? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I need to... I need to apologize. I'm so sorry. I don't hate you, I promise. But I make snap judgments about you based on the number or the type of, uh, oh, I'm flustered now. Whew, didn't think there was going to be a snake person in here. Uh, I had dogs growing up, but uh, later on in life, we kind of switched to cats. Our dogs had passed away and we went to cats. They were a little bit easier. I was the guy who went to college with a cat. Like, I found a wife too. I don't know how that happened. But like, I had a cat living with me at my home off campus the full three years that I lived off campus. Oh, sugar bear. And I'm sure there's people who made snap judgments based on me, and they were probably very valid for judging a guy in college who owns a cat. But you, you get, the, you get the, the feel, right? That has nothing to do with who I really am or what I really value. But because I own a cat or a dog or a snake or whatever it may be, we instantly have thoughts that we think about those people. Do we do that with other things? Look at the example that James gives us in chapter 2. So he calls this idea of partiality out to the people, and then he says this in 2, verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. So he says there's, there's two types of people here, right? There's the rich people and the poor people. Well, how do you know? Well, he's just basing it off looks. Someone comes in looking really rich. Someone comes looking in or in looking really poor. What do you do? This is in the context of a church assembly. If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The example that he's giving, and I don't think it's necessarily hypothetical, I'm sure they experienced this, was there was some partiality shown to those who had a lot of money. You could probably understand it if you put yourself in the shoes of this early church that, you know, they're small, they're really trying to grow, resources are hard to find, not everybody is really, really into this whole Jesus Christ thing, and so a rich person walks in and everybody's like, this could be it. Like, if we can get them to be part of our thing... That's going to propel us in so many different ways. And at the same time, a poor person walks in and 
They don't see what that person could bring them, so they're kind of put to the side. Now, I would hope that that doesn't happen today, um, especially here at Fellowship, but I know we're all human, and we probably have that unconscious, unconscious bias that we don't even realize in a lot of ways. So what does it look like when this kind of comes into a church? You know, fellowship has even been asked from time to time to be biased towards people, and I'll explain. Uh, there's this story about years ago when Robert Cup was still on staff, <coughs> excuse me, that someone called and said, hey, we've got a, uh, a politician who's coming in town, and uh, they're going to be at your 930 service. Can you set aside a couple of rows for them and their family and that kind of thing? And call got to Robert, and so he just called him back. He's like, hey, really excited you are coming. Just want to tell you, get there early because uh, we get packed and we don't save seats. Have a great day. Uh, and he was being asked as fellowship, like, hey, can y'all give some preferential treatment to this person? And the answer, praise the Lord, was no. Like, we would love to have you, but we're not going to set aside certain things for certain people based on status or who they are or anything like that. So I don't know what it looks like necessarily with, with you guys, but I know that there are churches throughout America probably that are being run by their wealthiest member. That person is not the pastor, not on the elder board, not on the deacon board or whatever, but their influence carries so heavily because of what they can bring the church. And so often we can get skewed to the things of this world and it makes us make poor decisions. I struggle with it. Uh, give you some more vulnerability uh, up here. Uh, I struggle with this in a lot of ways. E- even from the, the very first meeting I had scheduled on staff, I was 23 years old. Um, and I'd come on staff as a community pastor, couldn't even rent a car legally for two years, had no idea what I was doing. And uh, a guy writes in, says he wants to meet with a pastor. So John Barclay, who was my co, says, hey, here's his number, call him, set up a meeting. I was like, sweet. So I meet with the guy, and he's asking theological questions about fellowship versus this denomination that he's kind of transferring from, and I have no idea what I said to the man at all. Uh, I was stumbling through answers, and I'm like apologizing, like, I hope you still come back to fellowship, like all those types of things. And he's like, no, this was great. It's just good to make a connection. And so I left kind of feeling bad, but like, oh, well, hopefully he still comes back. Then I went and Googled who this guy was. Uh, turns out he's a very prominent figure at a very prominent company uh, locally, and I immediately felt this. I immediately felt like even more guilty of like, oh, I hope I didn't turn away him. I wish I would have impressed him more. Now what's he going to think of me? What's he going to think of fellowship? And I never would have gone to that depth had I not known his status. I struggle with it in more ways than that. You know, growing up, and hopefully you identify, hopefully you don't identify with any of these, but probably because we all struggle, we do. Um, Even in recruiting cell leaders, I grew up in a ministry model where the people that were elevated weren't the most faithful believers. They were the sports stars. And so they didn't even have to be walking with the Lord, but if they would say the name of Jesus, give them the microphone and let them speak. And so when I recruit cell leaders, I have to fight against that of like, I need to find those faithful followers of Christ, no matter their status. Those, that faithful science teacher who loves kids and is willing to invest day and night into seeing the gospel transform lives. And there's lots of ways that I think this can infiltrate us. Even as a student pastor, when I hear, uh, this is me being really real, when I hear a dad is like a member at Pinnacle or has a Razorback box, I'm like, hey, how's it going? My name's Hunter. You know, nice to meet you. It's just the sin inside of me that immediately wants them to know, like, oh, yeah, I play golf. Okay, cool. Have a great day. Like that kind of thing. And y'all may, y'all may not be struggling with this at all, and you could have gone to listen to Mark Bailey, and instead you're over here hearing confession time with me, and I really apologize for that, but... 
I hope you see that like, man, I struggle. I think we all do whether we admit it or not or whether we even know how to identify it or not. Because it's a part of life. When we hear that someone could benefit us, like the sin inside of us just kind of moves. There's a story Mickey tells about Sam Walton when he was uh, shopping at a, either Fayetteville or Springdale Walmart one day, and his car broke down, his truck, that old truck that Sam drove, broke down in the parking lot. And so what did he do? Well, he went to the intercom system, and he said, hey, everybody, this is Sam, Sam Walton, and my truck is broken down out in the parking lot, and I need a ride up to Bentonville if anybody is headed that way. What do you think happened? <laughs> like everybody just flocks, right? Everybody wants to give Sam Walton a ride up to Bentonville. Now, I don't know if that story's true. I'm sure it is. But what if that person that needed that ride was me or you? Would the reaction have been the same? Probably not. Because we're just keen to hearing of people and status or whatever it may be, people who are the same as us. And it's part of our sin nature. But man, we don't want that to be part of the body of Christ and who we are as believers and the way that we live. Look what James says here in 2.5. He explains it a little more. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And he's showing them that like, man, God actually flips the script in so many ways as we have this perception on the world where we look at like, what can people benefit me? What James is saying here is, man, God in so many ways has called those who are poor, maybe not financially poor, but the humble to be the ones who inherit his goodness. And we will be skewed by status and even forget that these may be the people that oppress us or that want nothing to do with us. But there's this bias that we can have, this partiality, this favoritism, that if we're not careful, it seeps into our church and we begin to act like that even amongst believers. What does prejudice actually look like nowadays? One or more of these pictures probably strike you in some ways, but I think there's different types of prejudice. There's racial prejudice. Uh, we can be more prone to associate with um, men or women. Uh, definitely political parties can divide. You see someone driving a Prius with a Bernie sticker, and you're like, I don't want nothing to do with them. Or somebody wearing a Make America Great a hat, and you're like, nope, don't want anything to do with that person. And because of a religious or a, a political view or, or something like that, we immediately put people into a category and want nothing to do with them, only people who are like us. What do you think about people who have tattoos? Right? They're obviously not believers, right? <laughs> I, I'm telling you, that thought goes through some people's minds. It really does. We, we would see something and immediately put this person over here. I have the middle one up there because, again, I've confessed like five things. This is the sixth. Uh, I don't like people who are from Texas, and I know it sounds bad, but it's something that's been ingrained in me from when I was a kid. My dad taught me your favorite NFL team is whoever's playing the Cowboys. It doesn't matter. We just don't like Texas. Is anybody from Texas? I'm sorry. I knew it. I'm so sorry. The Lord is sanctifying me, I promise. And he's sanctifying you too, because now you live in Arkansas. So it's, get, it, it's getting better, I promise. But but I can make snap judgments based on where someone grew up, like where they're from. 
And while those may be funny, man, this can go to a deeper level that is very, very hurtful that we don't even realize. Where we as the body of believers who are supposed to be reflecting the love of Christ immediately rule people out. Believers or non-believers, based on all these different factors, sexual orientation, race, where they're from, like you name it. And it can be detrimental to the good news that the Lord wants us to deliver. James finishes out the reasoning why he's so interested in communicating, don't show partiality. He says this, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by law as transgressors. So the reality is that the antithesis of love isn't hate, at least not in this verse. The antithesis of love is partiality. That we may not hate someone, but if we show favoritism or bias for or against them, then we're creating barriers that God says, through James, break one of the greatest commandments that we have to love other people as we ought to be loved and as we want to be loved. James puts partiality as the sin. He puts it up there. He says, you do this one, you're breaking the whole law. And so our tendency is to draw this line and put people on one side or the other. Pick your category, whatever it may be. We tend to draw a line and say, they're different from me. I don't want to deal with that, right? Young people do that to old people, right? Some of y'all probably have some stereotypes of millennials like me. Some of them are probably real, but do we all deserve to get put in that category and completely pushed away from the potential of relationship? Watch what happens when one thing changes on the screen. When Christ becomes the center of our focus as believers, first of all, the slide itself doesn't even feel as harsh, right? That feels harsh and divisive. When you see Christ at the center, you really do see that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And you see, it's not that the differences go away, but the differences make God's creation more beautiful, and we go back to one of the most equalizing and foundational verses, Genesis 1.27, that all men and women were created equally in the image of God, no matter all these other factors. And when we see people through that lens, the new lens of the gospel, it pushes away that bias, that favoritism that we naturally have as sinners, and it helps us paint a picture of who God really is in the way that we love people. Galatians 3.28 says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. That verse isn't saying that all those things go away and that there's no such thing as male, female, or anything like that. What it's saying is those differences aren't what defines us. What, what defines us is our identity in Jesus and what He's done through His work on the cross and the opportunity that He gives us to live a life of hope with all types of people, whether they're alike, whether they go to a different school, whether they're different than us, doesn't matter. So as James writes this, where is he getting this from? Like he doesn't have the New Testament, right? This is probably one of the first books written in the New Testament. What example does he have for seeing this lived out? Who did he walk closely with almost his whole life? Jesus, his half-brother, and when you look at the life of Jesus, man, if anyone lived this idea of no favoritism, no partiality out, it was him. If you lived like this, you would be called a weirdo today if you associated with all these random people. But Jesus loved women, which was a no-no in that culture for a man to associate himself with a woman. 
and he went to the woman at the well, and he brought her life and truth. He associated with the unclean and loved them. You know, when the lepers asked to be healed, Jesus didn't just heal him, he touched him. And he went out of his way to say, I want you to get to experience me. The poor, he's always preaching about loving the poor, and he's flipping the script of what it means to be rich and poor. The oppressors, you look at the story of Zacchaeus, he was a hated man, a tax collector. Jesus could have looked at him and declared what was true, like, you're living in sin, you're doing all this. What's the first thing that Jesus said to Zacchaeus? Come down. I want to spend some time with you. I want to go to your house. Jesus loved the Samaritans, those of a different race. Like, the list goes on and on. It's probably bigger than this. But all that to say, he has set an example for us, not so we can build up these walls again, but so we can see that he broke them down and we can be unified in the way that we love people. So you may be wondering, well, do I do this well? And, and I think sometimes we can get caught in analyzing how well are we doing at something, but look at what C.S. Lewis says. He says, don't waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Just act as if you did. And as soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. And really what he's emphasizing here is that, man, we could sit here and analyze how we're doing in regards to living out this commandment, but what if we just did it? Whether our heart was fully there or not, what if we said, I want to love the way Jesus loved, and I want to welcome in people into my life? Because this is true. The gospel breaks barriers and brings unity. And so you can do a little inventory and look at your life and say, man, who's been at our dinner table in the last three months, six months? Are they different than us? Or are they just like us? Who do we do life with on a daily basis? When I see someone who's different, do I slow down and take a five-minute conversation just to ask them who they are, how they're doing, where they're from, what's life like? Or do I just blaze through life, pushing anything that's different away? We as believers have one of the greatest opportunities to bring people into the hope of who Jesus Christ is. And it isn't necessarily in this day and age gonna be just blasting truth to people. It's gonna be the way that we love them and the way that we live out what God has called us to do.